good morning, everyone. And thank you so much for joining us this morning, albeit virtually. We are continuing to pray that the Lord does indeed bring us back together so I am no longer looking at an empty church. And someday I am certain that that will happen, and Lord willing, that will happen soon. I am Pastor Jason, and, and thank you for, for joining us. Last week, we got a, a bit of a surprise, Pastor Eric and I did, when, when the audio didn't work. This morning, you get a bit of a surprise, but, but this surprise is planned. Instead of jumping right into the book of Acts, we have some special guests that we have invited to join us via Zoom. Some missionaries of our, some long-time missionaries of Rancho Baptist Church. We are so blessed to have George and Wendy Payton come and spend just a little bit of time catching us up on what the Lord is doing, how the Lord is guiding and leading them. For those of you who don't know, George and, and Wendy, they have been serving with Whitcliffe Bible Translators for many, many years. They started off in Kenya working with the Orna language there, doing some translation. And then the Lord led them to Tanzania. And then from there, they, they came back to the States and, and they have been working at, at Biola, helping out there with a, sort of a, a, a translation um, degree program, a missions degree. And yet the Lord has chosen, as this is so much the case in, in missions, what, what is the big thing that we have to do as missionaries over and over and over again is learn to be flexible. Learn to just go with where the Lord is leading as things change and as you see him direct you in otherwise ways that you did not know that direction that you were actually going. And so this morning, I am so thankful to have the Paytons with us. So George and Wendy, please let us know how things are going. Thank you, Pastor Jason. Uh, we really appreciate getting to share with all of you today. And we would like to tell you about those changes that are coming up for us. Um, as Pastor Jason mentioned, we spent many years in Africa, first in Kenya and then in Tanzania. When we first went to Africa, our focus was on translation, to live with a language uh, group and uh, people and learn their language and develop an alphabet, and eventually do literacy and translation work. What we didn't know is along the way, we would be involved in training other national translation teams and colleagues in how to do Bible translation. Uh, we were also surprised when God led us back here to the U.S. and allowed George to teach translation skills um, at Biola and to develop courses and train new uh, Bible translators. And we are excited about the um, new uh, work that we'll be doing at Dallas. And in Dallas, George will be teaching um, translation uh, courses. All these experiences that we've had leading up to this point have really given us a background and basis for the new ministry role in Bible translation that God has for us. So I will be teaching at Wickless Training School in Dallas, same one that Wendy and I studied at many years ago. And I'm really excited to get to be a part of the translation department there. We are going to be developing new courses. We're going to be expanding the program. You see, the world today and the challenges that translation people face today are very, very different than what we faced when we went out some years ago. And so they need a new training paradigm. They need new training courses. They need to know how to face certain challenges of getting into closed countries. All of those things need to be developed. And Dallas uh, School has asked me to come and help to do that, to, so to expand the program. And so I'm excited to get to equip God's people who have been called into translation, come to Dallas for training, and I get to be a part of that training program to launch them out so that they can then be successful in fulfilling God's call in their life. And another thing that really excites me about teaching translation is I get to hear the stories of the people that I have trained as they go out and do the translation work. And I received an email just a couple of days ago from a young man, Adam, and his family there in Papua New Guinea. 
and they're translating the Bible for the Enga people. And Adam said, we're here in Pasadena. We're getting ready to sit with a consultant and go through our translation one more time so that it's very accurate and correct. And so I get a joy in sharing in their victories. I get pleasure and excitement and encouragement in being able to have said, I had a little part in Adam's training. And so that's what really excites us and even more the same when we go to Dallas. That is exciting. We get to continue in the work, the ministry of Bible translation, although the changes do come with some challenges. We were not expecting COVID-19 to happen in the middle of all of this. Um, we are leaving behind family and uh, two of our children here. Uh, the exciting thing in Dallas is we're closer to two new grandbabies that are on their way, and we're excited about that. Pastor Jason asked us to share this morning about um, our current support level, and Wycliffe requires us to be at 100%. We are now at 81% of our promised support. Um, that's about 15 new partners is what we need in order to be fully supported by the end of June. When he mentioned um, partnering, and it's one way to look at it is to say, financially, how much do you need? But I think a, a more healthy way to look at it is we want to partner with people. So it's a personal thing rather than a financial thing. And if I can use the example from the Apostle Paul, in Philippians 1, 3 through 5, he thanks them for their participation in the gospel. He thanks them for um, partnering with them. And the word is koinonia. So he's thanking them for koinonia-ing with him. Um, and we need people to koinonia with us, to walk alongside us, to pray for us, to support us, to encourage us, so that we can then... Um, be equipped to go out and do the ministry that God called us to do. We're really excited about this ministry. We're excited because we get to join God in what he's doing. We get to join God in what he's doing in the lives of the students and what he's going to do when they go overseas. And so we're excited and we need people to walk with us. We need people to be excited too and to join us in God's work. So it's all about God and what he's doing. And we get to the privilege of joining God in doing his work. And so we invite people to do that. They can come alongside us, walk with us, pray with us, um, send us Facebook messages and texts and, and Skyping and everything. It's really, really wonderful to be able to do that. Um, I would like to just um, say again, thank you to Pastor Jason and to RBC for being uh, part of our partnership team all these years. And uh, I would just like to, to broaden up um, a comment about RBC as a whole. And RBC sends out a bunch of missionaries. That's really exciting to see what God is doing around the world through the missionaries that you support. And uh, I would encourage uh, people who maybe not have been involved in, as it were, missions. Let's not think of it as, gee, I want to get involved in missions. We can think of it as, how can I get involved in this missionary in their lives? How can I be an encouragement to them? How can I support them? How can I pray better for them? And I'm telling you, when we get messages and emails from people that are on our support team, that just lifts our spirits so much. So we need the emotional support, we need the, the spiritual connection, and we need um, just to walk with you. So I encourage you, if it's not the patents, may it be someone else that you can partner with and be a part of that as part of your ministry at RBC. So back to Pastor Jason. Thank you so much. Well, amen. How cool is that, huh? That, that we can have some missionaries just jump on with us and, and we can get a, a live update on how things are going and honestly be given some real things to pray for. So, so let me go ahead and pray for, for George and Wendy before we open up God's word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is your work that the Paytons are involved in, Lord. That you, will, that will, you alone will be the one that, that will provide for them, Lord. 
So first, I, I pray that you would raise up more of their financial support, that by the end of June, that they are indeed 100% supported. I, I thank you for the blessing of them moving out where they're going to be close to their kids, Lord, and for the, the new little bundles of joy that will be waiting for them, Lord, as two more grandkids will be given to them, Lord. Thank you for just all the different gifts that you have given them. Pray that you would just allow this transition from here in California to, to going out to working with Wycliffe in particular and in Dallas, Texas, and all that that entails, Lord, help them as they transition, particularly right now during COVID. Lord, we pray that you would raise up not only financial support, but much, much needed prayer support and that you would continue to use them, and that your word would continue to go forth, that it would continue to be translated, and that you would use the patents to allow more and more folks to be able to hold your word in their hands as we hold your word in our hands this morning, Lord. So go before this dear family, and thank you for them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thank you, George and Wendy. We are going back to the book of Acts. And this morning, before we open up the book of Acts, I would like you to turn to Mark chapter 5. And what I would consider one of the most popular stories of, of demons and and somebody being possessed by a demon in, in all of scripture for what, what we see is that it's not somebody possessed by one demon, but what we're going to see is someone possessed by a thousand demons. And this will be a, a really good picture of where we're going in the book of Acts this morning. So Mark chapter five, verses one to 13, which says this, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with, sha with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gnashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him, speaking of Jesus, earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains, or on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Think about just how incredible this encounter is. Jesus comes up against not, not one demon, not two demons, but a 1,000 demons that are inside this man. No one could control this man. Not chains, not shackles, nothing that he would just break them. And everybody was scared to death of this man. Why? Because of all these demons. And what happens is Jesus shows up. These demons, they are what? They are totally in fear of Jesus. They seek him out before he even comes to them. And then they're asking him to deal mercifully with them. 
to send them over to here, but not to send them to there. As we open up our time in God's word this morning, my question is, and this is where we're going to go this morning. Where does this fear of Jesus that the demons have come from? Because as we look at scripture, we see time and time again that, that men, they don't always get it right. They're all oftentimes confused as to who Jesus Christ is, right? Over and over again, even though they might see Jesus' power vividly displayed before them, they still don't get it. And now as we've been walking through the book of Acts, we see in, in different towns and villages where, where some understand and others, they just don't get it. They don't know who Jesus is. And yet time and time again, in fact, every time, you know what the demons do? They know exactly who Jesus is. They understand. They get it. In fact, they are in fear of Jesus time and time and time again. Why is that? Well, it's because they know him. It's because he is their creator. It's because their relationship with Jesus goes way back. But we have to also ask ourselves, what do we do with accounts like this, like of this demoniac in, in Mark chapter 5? What do we do? And you can, you can turn there with me now. What do we do with Acts chapter 19? What do we do with other places in the book of Acts that we've already been to where we see demons? where we see possession. What, what is the reason that God has given us his word and given us these particular situations where demons step into the spotlight? And in particular, possessions of normal people are highlighted. What, why does this happen? Why does God reveal this to us in his word? Because the last time I looked and the last time I thought about it, most of us do not live in this realm. If I were to ask each of you how many times you have come in contact with a person who is possessed, no doubt most of you would say, well, Pastor Jason, never. Some of you might say, well, yes, I think so at this particular time. And so, so again, my question is, why would God give this to us? And the reason is because if the Lord didn't remind us of the spiritual battle that is all around us, we would forget about it over and over and over again. We have to be reminded because we would forget. Why? Because the spiritual realm is the spiritual realm and where we live is the physical realm. It is very difficult for us to wrap our arms around this idea that there is a spiritual war all around us. And it is a war for the souls of men. And so why does God give us in his word accounts such as Mark 5, accounts such as Acts 19? He, he gives them to us so that we would grow in our understanding of who God is, how powerful God is. Yes, the spiritual war that is all around us, but more in particularly, how great our God is. So that we would get a better, more healthy fear of God. And when I say fear, I mean a respect of God. I mean an awe of God for who he is and how great he is and how much greater he is than all. And that is what we will see this morning. We will see a fear that changes everything, as I've entitled this sermon. And as I think about this, what is the weapon that we have been given to battle Satan? Do, do all of us need to learn the gift of casting out demons, the order in which you would cast out a demon and what the right words are to say is, is that the main point of what we're going to see this morning? No, that the main point of what we are going to see this morning and even what we see written by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, the way that, that we battle the spiritual realm, the forces of darkness is through the sword of the spirit. And do you know what the sword of the Spirit is? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And as we look at Acts chapter 19 this morning, and as this whole story unfolds before us, we see that what is happening is significant for what is Paul doing? He is proclaiming the Word. He is preaching the Word. He is teaching the Word. 
And as the word of God goes forth, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, Satan rises up in opposition. And that's what we're going to see this morning in, in a little different venue. But we will see that in the end, it is, it is not this idea of casting out demons that is lifted up high, that is exalted or, or perhaps seen as increasing more and more in the book of Acts at the, at the tail end of the verses that we're going to see this morning. You know, what we are going to see is the very word of God is prevailing, is growing, is increasing. And that is what we're going to walk away with this morning. So turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 19. And what we're going to see this morning, we're going to look at it, are verses 8 to 20. And we're going to see a fear that changes everything. Starting in verse 8, and he, speaking of Paul, entered the synagogue. Remember, he is in Ephesus and continued speaking out boldly for three months reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found at 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Let me pray for our time in the word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we need to grow in our understanding of who you are. In our awe, and our respect and our fear of you. Lord, use your word this morning to cause us to gain a, a greater understanding of who, who you are, that we might be changed, that our lives would be changed more and more as a result of our knowledge of you and the fact that we are growing in our fear and our awe of you because you are so great. And your grace is so marvelous. So guide our time in your word now. And speak to us through your word as only you can through the Holy Spirit. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. So my question for us this morning is, is it's a simple and it's an easy one. And perhaps you'll just say, oh, yes, I've got that one. And you can turn, tune this whole sermon out of your mind quickly. But, but the reality is, I think far too many of us do not live in the reality of what is presented here. The question is, do you understand the power of godly fear? And, and what I'd like to present this morning are five questions that we should ask ourselves to better understand if we truly fear God. Don't answer too quickly. Let the word of God have its effect upon your heart this morning as we uncover the, the riches 
the gold that's in God's word. And allow the word of God to penetrate deep into our hearts that we might truly leave this morning with a greater fear and a greater understanding of God that we may be changed. The first question that I see presented here is, is this. Are you daily committed to the word of God? That's what we see here. Are you daily committed to God's word? Or is it just a fleeting thing that, that you only open up on Sundays? Why? Because, well, that's when Pastor Jason opens up the word. What about daily? Are you spending time in the word of God? This is what we see in the Apostle Paul right away in verses 8 to 10. Look at what it says about what he is doing. And he entered the synagogue. And what was he doing? And he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. What is he preaching? What is he teaching? What is he presenting? He's presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's presenting, no doubt, Isaiah 53, opening up the scroll and letting them know that this suffering servant that was to come was Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has not only come once, he is coming again. And when he comes again, he is coming to establish his kingdom. And this is what Paul is proclaiming in the synagogue in the synagogue in Ephesus, where he'd already gone, where he had been given basically a, an open door. And so we see him for three months in the synagogue. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So again, what is the question? Do you spend daily time in the word? Are you daily committed to the word of God like the Apostle Paul was here? We see that his time started off sharing the gospel in the synagogue. And actually, for, for, for the Apostle Paul, it was like a world record for how long he spent in the synagogue. He was there for three months before they finally had it with them, and they got tired. And their hearts became more and more hardened. And then what did they start doing? They, they started ridiculing Christians, calling them the way during this time. For That is referring to Christ's church, those in Christ's church. And much as... What happened in Corinth, where there the synagogue, the people in the synagogue got tired of hearing this too and started pushing back. At that point, what happened? Paul went next door and he went to the house of justice. Well, here we see that, that Paul then takes the disciples. Notice he's taking believers and he's taking them to a place that, that we're told is, is the school of Tyrannus. Now, this is significant to understand why they would have a school of philosophy in Ephesus. And the reason is because Ephesus was, was the center of intellectual thought in Asia during this time. It had one of the largest libraries in all of the Roman world and all of the world. And so there were philosophers, famous philosophers there, that, that not only philosophized, but they actually had schools. And they would teach people the principles of philosophy. And one of these guys' names was Tyrannus. And what most church historians believe is that Tyrannus would not have given up his school to Paul unless he wasn't using it. Because his school was being used daily by himself teaching all of his students. And so then the question is, well, when did Paul get this school? And the answer to that is that in this particular culture, from 11 o'clock in the morning to about four in the afternoon, it was so hot that everybody stopped what they were doing. And, and much as they, they would say in, in, in Mexico, they took a siesta. They'd go home, they'd eat lunch, and then everybody would just lay low. Why? Because it's so hot. 
And most historians say that during that time of the day, that is when Paul was given the A-OK by Tyrannus to use his school. And so Paul would gather all the believers together and he would teach them. He would open up the scrolls, he would teach them, and he would pour his life into them. But recognize how significant this is. On the one hand, in the life of Paul, what we're going to find later on in Acts chapter 20, verse 34, is it says there that, that as Paul was in Ephesus, he doesn't receive any kind of financial support from the believers in Ephesus. He's not living off of any kind of financial support or gifts from the church. He's supporting himself and all of the missionaries that are with him. And do you know how he's doing that? He's doing that by working as a tent maker. He's working as a tent maker from early in the morning till 11 o'clock in the, in the morning. And then what does he do? He takes off his tent, tent maker's hat and he, and he puts on his, his Bible teacher hat. And then he opens up the word of God, the scrolls, and he, and he teaches from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. What most believe is he does that five days a week. And for how long does he do this? He, he does this for two years. Some have theorized that if you add up all of those hours of teaching, that what these believers in Ephesus came away with would be something equivalent to like a, a seminary education. To the time that I spent in seminary is what they received as they gathered every day from 11 a.m. To, to 4 p.m. Do you think that these believers in Ephesus were hungry for the word of God? You bet. If they weren't, they would have come up with every excuse imaginable. In fact, they didn't even need an excuse because everybody in their whole culture and all of Ephesus was staying home. And they could have easily stayed home as well. But instead, they wanted to grow more and more in their knowledge of God's word. Why? Because they were committed to spending time in the word of God. How committed are we? Are, are we willing to sacrifice something? Because these guys, they were sacrificing. They were still carrying on their normal routines and then adding Bible study into the mix. And they did this for two years, at least two years. And then we see as a result, right, that, that the word of the Lord went forth. So that all who lived in Asia, verse 10, heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. My, my question is, how did Paul do that? How could Paul go and, and, and do what he's doing in Ephesus and then expand his ministry out to all of Asia so that Jews and Greeks were hearing the word of the Lord? Well, the answer is Paul didn't do it. The answer is, is that as Paul trained up the different ones that were coming to his teaching time. He must have sent them out. And they must have gone out and then just started sharing Christ with everyone in all of Asia. So this isn't Paul's work. This is the body of Christ's work. This is what we should all be involved in. And what's even more amazing about all of this is, is the countercultural thing that was going on because in Asia, their, their houses are elaborate. It's a rich country. They're, everything that they wore was very elegant. They had roads. They had sewer systems. And, and you didn't have any of that in Palestine. And, and yet these, these more primitive folk come and they, and they turn all of Asia upside down. How? Through the word of God. Because they were committed to the word of God. And their lives were so different than the lives of everyone around them. And the message that they were proclaiming, the God that they were proclaiming, was much different than all of the gods of those in Ephesus as well as all the surrounding places. And what we can see is, is the way that they lived allowed their message to be heard. What a great thing for us to consider, right? Is our message able to be heard because of the way that we live? Do I daily commit myself to spending time in the word of God? That, that is the first question. 
that we must ask ourselves in, in determining whether or not we actually have a proper fear of the Lord. And that next question that we, that we see is, am I greatly used by the Lord? Or we can rephrase it, am I in such a frame of mind that I allow the Lord to use me? And we see this in verses 11 and 12. And, and I'm not even certain that, that Paul even knew what was going on. It doesn't seem like he's handing out these handkerchiefs and, and, and all of this. No, it, it, it seems as if things are just running through him. And this is what God's plan was. Look at verses 11 and 12. As, it's, as God's word says, God was performing extraordinary miracles. Okay, let me just stop there. What's an extraordinary miracle? I mean, just a miracle is a miracle in it of itself. It's extraordinary. It's something special. It's, it's out of the norm. So, so what is this? This is an unusual miracle. This is a miracle that's not the ordinary kind of miracle. This is a miracle that's like exponentially a miracle. This is an unexpected miracle. This is something that is not the norm even when we talk about miracles. And we see who is doing it. All of the focus is off of Paul. All of the focus is on to the Lord, that he is the one doing this. And so the application for us is that, that God will do great things in and through us when we are walking in dependence upon him, when we are committed to his word as the Apostle Paul was. And look at what the Lord does through him. Extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. That the handkerchief is, is just something that he tie around his head in order to keep the sweat from, from coming down upon his face. The apron was just basically like a, a work apron. And again, this goes back to the fact that Paul must have been working as a tent maker. And as he's working as a tent maker and getting all sweaty, he, he, he'd take this, this face cloth off and he'd set that this sweat band off and he'd set that over here and he'd take the apron off that, that no doubt had all of his tools for tent making in it. And he'd set that over there and he'd go about and do something. And people would actually grab that and the Lord used that to do some miraculous healing. Can you make any sense of that? I can't. But what I do know is it's not about the clock. It, it isn't like the Apostle Paul went to some special place and, and, it, and it was like God giving Moses the Ten Commandments, that God gave Paul a special chest from heaven that contained these amazing, extraordinary things. And, and, and so the handkerchiefs and, and the aprons, there was hundreds of them in this special chest that God, no, this, this was just normal stuff that everybody used. No, not everybody. Actually, it was the working class that used these kinds of things. And I wonder if even in that, the message to you and I is that the Lord uses the nobodies. That he doesn't use the special ones. He uses those that trust in him and him alone. Because that is what Paul was doing. He was committing himself to doing exactly what the Lord told him to do. And I'm not even certain that Paul is aware of all that is going on through his handkerchief and his aprons that are being passed out. But the Lord is doing something amazing. But it isn't that the items are magical. That's what many people would like us to think. And you could turn on some television shows and, and, and you could find it for $50. You could buy this and you could buy that. And oh, this was a, a snippet of the, of the cloth that was from Jesus with his burial cloth. And oh, you can go and you can get a little chip of, of Moses' staff. And these kinds of things actually made their way out to the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And the tribal people there were following all of these kinds of practices. Why? Because it fits right into a worldview of an animist. who Their whole world is about manipulation. And so, yes, give me this little piece of wood and I can manipulate God to give me whatever I want. And yet that is not what is happening here. 
What is happening here is God is doing this and he is being exalted. And why is God doing this? Because he wants to show the kind of man that Paul is. He wants to validate the messenger in order to show that the message is indeed true. Jesus Christ and, and his word is coming from Paul. And how do you know that? You know that because of the wonderful, miraculous things that Paul is doing, just as Peter did, just as Jesus did. They are his apostles. And, and yet, is, is this something that, that we see happening over and over again? Is this something that we could look at and say, hey, this, this is the norm? Pastor Jason, when you talk about, am I being greatly used by the Lord? Are you talking about me being able to do miraculous, extraordinary miracles like this? And I would say, no, that, that's not the norm. Think about what we've seen already in the book of Acts in, in Athens. When Paul comes to Athens, is there anything miraculous that happens? No. How about Corinth? No. Thessalonica? No. How about Berea? No. So, so it's not a consistent pattern that every time a man of God does what the Lord tells him to do, or a woman of God, that they would then do miracles. This was for a, a particular purpose in a particular time. What does the Lord want to do today? He wants to use us. And maybe what this looks like? Is the Lord using you in your workplace? And as you share Christ and as you live a godly life to those around you in your workplace, the miraculous happens and your boss that, that has just been against Christianity for so long turns to the Lord. Perhaps it, it looks like someone that you know of that is, that is struggling with some sort of sickness. And they've been struggling with a sickness for a very long time. And you commit to the Lord to pray for that person. And then what does the Lord do by his wonderful grace and mercy? He, he allows that sickness to, to go away. All the different ways that the Lord works today, we, we can't count them. But we don't need to hold up the Apostle Paul and, and, and think that if somebody were to go ahead and, and, and get a headband that I used when I was playing tennis, that we could hand that out to somebody. No, that, that's, that's just going to be a sweaty headband. It's what the Lord does with it, where all the power comes. So, so we see clearly that first, we must be daily diving into God's word. And as we walk in dependence on him and in obedience to him, he will show up. Our great God will show up and he will work in and through us. And he will allow us to be greatly used by him as we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Of course, when this happens, Satan oftentimes shows up as well to discourage and sabotage God's work. And that's what we see happening next in the sons of Sceva. Look at verses 13 to 16. As we see this, the next question that, that we should ask ourselves is, am I falsely claiming the name of the Lord? Are you falsely claiming the name of the Lord? Pretending to be something that you're not. Pretending to know Christ when you don't. These are very powerful verses here. As we see, verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So this was a common practice during this day. That there were lots of people that, that were possessed by demons. And so there were lots of those who went around that, that were Jewish, that they were exorcists, not just Jewish people, but others. But a lot of Jewish folks actually ended up becoming exorcists and they made lots of money by going around and casting out demons. And so now what do they do? They add Jesus' name on, on top of all the other spells and, and their special ways of, of trying to cast out demons. And they, of course, think, well, this is what is going to help us. We're going to make more money. We're going to have more power and we're going to be able to do this better and better because of what Paul and the Lord is doing through him. And then we see verses 14, 15, and, and, and 16, right? Something that, that is just not the norm. And the man 
Oh, sorry, verse 14. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, well, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What is going on here? What's going on here are these guys are counterfeit claimers. They're they are trying to use the name of Jesus for their own personal gain. And we see that they get a very rude awakening. And it happens basically in two different ways. First, they get this rude awakening by being called out as being fake. As this demon speaks out to them. And he says, yes, I recognize Jesus. No, actually in the Greek, this, this word is gnosko. It's I know Jesus. And that word means to personally know someone. And so what the demon is saying, as I personally know Jesus. And then when he gets to Paul, he says, and I know, and that word is epistomai. That means to, to have acquired information about. It means, and, and I've heard about Paul. And I understand that Paul is, that he's with Jesus. But I do not know who you are. And there's some challenging things about that statement. First, the fact that, that this particular demon, that he knew Jesus Christ, that he was personally acquainted with Jesus Christ, but he did not really know him. He did not have a personal relationship with Jesus. May that never be said of you and me. That we would say that we know Jesus, but we really don't. That we have some sort of understanding, some sort of relationship with him, but it is not a true relationship. For that is what this demon is saying. That he knows who Jesus is, but it doesn't go any further than that. It doesn't go into a deep personal relationship where he has now trusted Christ as a savior, of course, because he is a follower of Satan and, and one of Satan's demons. And, and so first we see that, that this, these seven sons of Sceva, and think about that, compared to what we saw in, in the beginning with, with Mark 5 and, and Jesus with the thousand demons and how he overcomes a thousand demons and others. One demon going against seven sons. You would think these seven sons could just jump on this guy and it would be done. But no, that is not the case. The complete opposite, actually. For after this demon exposes him as a fake, what does he do next? He then jumps on these seven guys and beats them to a pulp. But he doesn't leave it there. He, he actually somehow takes off all their clothes so that they run out of the house naked and scared. This is the epitome of being totally shamed and humiliated. I would think there could be nothing more embarrassing for these seven guys than this. And yet consider this, that these seven men, although they were embarrassed, although they were beaten, although they were humiliated, although they were shamed, they are not dead. They can still repent. They can still turn to the Lord. What's more embarrassing, what's more shameful, what's much more scary than these seven guys being beat up and chased out of the house? Perhaps this. A churchgoer who comes to church every Sunday of his life. He says, oh, yes, I know the Lord Jesus. And then he stands before the Lord Jesus on judgment day. And Jesus says to him, hey, I know Paul. I know Barnabas. Hey, I, I know Matthew, Mark. But I don't know you. And he tells that person, depart from me, you, you worker of wickedness, for I know you not. That is the scariest thought ever. And what is the reason why these seven sons of Sceva couldn't cast out the demon? It is because they did not know Jesus. 
The demon knew Jesus, but they didn't. We must be careful about coming to Jesus on our terms, which is what they are doing. These seven guys think, okay, yes, we are going to use Jesus for our own personal profit and gain. Instead of allowing Jesus to be their savior. And I wonder if perhaps some do that in the church. That they want to use Jesus in order to hopefully make their life a little bit more comfortable. And yet they do not recognize that you do not come to Jesus and tell him what to do. You come to Jesus with open hands saying, wherever you lead me, that is where I will go. The demon knew about Jesus in such a way that he had some sort of relationship with him, but it wasn't enough. The seven sons of Sceva, they were just lying. And perhaps this morning, as you hear this whole account, you're thinking, oh, this is just some far-fetched thing, and I don't even buy all of this demonology, but perhaps you're someone else. Perhaps you're someone who, who dabbles with the occult. Perhaps you've messed around with a Ouija board or you're into witchcraft or you're into I, I don't, whatever you want to say. You know what? There is a spiritual reality. This is true. I have seen the occult. I have seen someone who was indeed demon possessed. What I would plead with you this morning is you do not understand the power you are playing with. Turn away from that. Turn to the only one who has power over Satan. Turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. It's a scary thing to take the reality of spiritual warfare and take it lightly. Why does God give us this account? Is it to uphold demons and show how powerful they are? No. I don't think so. Is it to show how fake these seven sons of Sceva were? No. I think those are, are secondary. And, and what the Lord is really trying to expose and what the Lord is trying to express to us is what happens as a result of this. And what we see finally that is just so, so strong. Is this idea, are you fearfully reverent concerning the Lord? Look at verse 17. And what becomes of all of this? Verse 17, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Fear fell upon them all, believers, non-believers. It didn't matter. Why? Because they saw that. Magnificent power of God being displayed through what the Apostle Paul was doing, even through this account of the seven sons of Sceva. Why? Because they recognize that Jesus Christ is more powerful than even this demon. And the message that Paul was proclaiming was more powerful than anything that Satan would have to share with them. When, when it speaks of fear, we're talking about a, a sense of awe. It could be understood as the product of an intimidating or alarming force. This is supposed to grip us. This is supposed to have some sort of effect on us when we look at this and we see what has happened. And as a result, the name of the Lord is being magnified. That's one of the problems with all the modern day miracles and, and, and all this other stuff going on is, is that there's many people that are being exalted, but hardly is it ever the Lord Jesus Christ being exalted. And as we come into a proper understanding, a proper fear of the Lord, it has an effect on us. It changes us, or at least it should change us. And I wonder, as we, as we consider this this morning, is your understanding of God's greatness and your reverential fear of him more than it was last year? If it isn't, then maybe that's because the answer that you have for the first so many questions 
wasn't a yes. Perhaps you're not spending time daily in his word. And as a result, your understanding of God is not continuing to grow, but it's stagnant, if not just getting more and, and, and more weak, because you're not informing your mind constantly by immersing yourself in God's word each day. Or perhaps you're not seeing God work mightily in and through you, and so you've lost sight of his greatness. Or perhaps you're, you're like these seven sons of Sceva, and, you, and you've downplayed your relationship with him so much that all he is to you is a name. We, we've had some family discussions lately when it comes to prayer around the table before we're about to eat. Been challenged that, that you know, sometimes it seems like you just keep saying the same prayer for every meal. And, and, and I believe that's a step towards where these sons of Sceva were at. When, when we pray, we should stop and we should remember who we are praying to. It should not be the case that we are not growing in our understanding of the greatness of God and even of our fear of him. We should be growing in our fear of the Lord and in our understanding of his greatness compared with our nothingness. If that is the case, then change will occur. In fact, a change that changes everything, for that's what we see happen next. And let me close our time with verses 18 to 20. As we've seen the effect that what happened with the, the seven sons of Sceva and this demon had on believers and non-believers, now we're told the particular effect it has on believers. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Final question, are you mightily growing in the word? Not just are you spending time in the word, not just are you hearing the word, but are you mightily growing in the word of God? Is it having an effect on you? And does your understanding of God, and as you grow in your understanding of him, and as your fear of him grows, is that translating into a changed life? That is what we see here. Notice how it says, who we're talking about, it says, many of those who had believed. In the Greek, that is very strong. It's the idea of, of believing at one time and finishing that belief in the past, but having ongoing consequences, results into now that, yes, they believed and they're still believing. But notice that even though they're still believing, they have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Because what we see is that, that many of those that are believers, they were ones who practiced magic. Not only did they practice magic, they still had all of their magical books in their homes. This speaks of the worldview of these people. They were much like the people group that we work with in Papua New Guinea, who saw sicknesses happening because of spirits. And the only way for somebody to get better when they were sick was to cast a particular spirit out. And so they had many, many books. And we must understand that even though they had many, many books for this, these books were costly. And so it wasn't common for everyone to have books. And if you did, it wasn't like today that you could just throw them out and it didn't mean much because it only cost you a buck or five bucks on Amazon. No, this is an amazing amount of money. Millions of dollars is what is being represented on what they are doing. And what is this a picture of? This is a picture of repentance, that these believers come into contact with the fear of the Lord and they are changed. They leave different and they recognize, oh man, I can no longer keep living the way that I have been living. I am going to go into my house and I'm going to grab these books that are part of my old life. And I'm going to take these books. I'm going to pile them with my brother and my sister over here who's doing the same thing. And together, publicly, we are going to burn these as a testament to the fact that we are now going to live differently. Man, what a cool picture. That is biblical repentance. And it's seen here both public and costly. 
because it costs them so much to do this. And how cool is it of our God that, that instead of coming after them with a bat, that he comes after them with his grace and reveals to them his power and gives them a, a godly fear of himself to such an extent that they are changed. And as a result of them changing, they then want to leave their old way of life. How about you this morning? Have you thrown off the old things that characterized your life before Christ? Or are there still some things that you're holding on to that, that are causing you to stumble and possibly even run from the Lord? Sometimes we need a clear and clean break from those kinds of things. Let me close with this. Check, check this out. This is this is very encouraging and challenging for me at the, at the same time. Notice what, what we're bookended with in this scripture. What we're bookended with at the beginning is the word of the Lord, and at the end is the word of the Lord, verse 10 and verse 20. Notice what it says in, in verse 10, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then in verse 20, we see, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Those are very similar phrases, very close, but they are different. Do you see the difference between them? In the beginning, verse 10, it's only hearing without anything attached, meaning no change. It's hearing without believing. The word's going out, and they hear it, but it's, it's not bringing about the effect that it should. When we get to verse 20, we see that it's not just hearing, but hearing and being changed. I believe that this is the kind of church that Christ honors. That he wants us to, to be a church that is not just about the gospel proclamation that we go to the mall, that we go to our neighbors. Yes, yes, we do all of that. We must do all of that, but we must take it a step further. We must be willing to give up that which costs us something. Through stepping forward and burning those things in our lives which shouldn't be characterizing us anymore. It means that we forsake everything and follow Christ. The word of God must be prevailing. That's the word that is used in, in verse 20. As he wraps everything up, the word of God must be prevailing in our own individual lives and in us as a body. It must be the power in your life. It must be in control of your life. Having its power working in and through you. For that is what the word prevail means. It must prevail over you. It must take over. It must be in control. And as it does that, you will change. By God's wonderful grace. And then you and I, like Paul, we can, we can make those that are in hell aware of us. But, but not because we're casting out demons. Not by making some great name for ourselves. No, but because we're all about this. Because we're all about God's word. And we are standing on God's word. We're spending time in God's word each day. Day. We are being used of the Lord as we walk in dependence upon him. And for us, Jesus isn't just a name. He is our Savior, the one whom we commune with every day, and we spend time with him. And as we do that, if perchance we might somehow run into a demon, at least at that point, he won't come to us and say, hey, I know Paul, and I know Jesus, but I don't know you. Let's make God's word all that we are, all that we hope to be, and all that we talk to others about in the gospel. Let me close with some points to ponder, and, and you can consider these through, throughout this upcoming week. Number one, consider how the, son, the seven sons of Sceva use the name of Jesus for their own purposes rather than truly seeing him as their savior. How might you be using Jesus in the same way? Number two, consider how the believers in Ephesus model true repentance that is both public and costly. 
Does your repentance look anything like theirs? Why or why not? And these things have drilled into me all week, these questions. Consider how the demons knew Jesus and knew Paul. Is there any reason why the demons might know you today? Why or why not? And finally, consider what effect the fear of the Lord had on the city of Ephesus and all of Asia. What would it look like for you to walk in the fear of the Lord? What kind of impact might that have on those around you? What does it mean to live in reverence and awe of our wonderful God? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how far reaching it is, Lord. And and we also thank you that your grace knows no bounds. It never ends. It never runs dry. So help us, Lord, to see you as we ought. To fall in love with you more and more and to have a, a healthy fear of you that would cause us to change. To be willing to burn those things in our lives that are not helpful, that are part of our old life, that we might walk with you in the newness of life that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.